Habakkuk 1, starting at verse 1, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear, even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save? Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard, and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hastes to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And they shall scoff at the kings and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust to take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. So far, let us pray. Father in heaven, again we come before you. O great sovereign, great king of kings and lord of lords, thou who inhabitest eternity, whose name is holy, O Lord, may we come before you, a humble people, recognizing that we are dust. And this morning I pray that the word would draw us to you, to worship you, to know you, to fear you. In Jesus' name, amen. So last time we looked at verses 1 through 4, Habakkuk's opening complaint with respect to to the Lord's deafening silence, as it would seem to him. This morning we're going to look at verse 5 only, and then, Lord willing, next time we'll work from from 6 through to the end of this subset, verses 5 through 11. But this morning there's enough in verse 5 to chew on. So, again, remember Habakkuk has opened up just pleading with the Lord, Where are you, O Lord? Why do you cause me to see these things? It is the decay of the nation that seems to be Um, sparking these pleas from Habakkuk, and he's like, what's going on? And we saw last time that God's judgment already is seen as he allows the nation to reap what they have sown, as the people get the consequences of their own disregard of the law. They overturn it. And we also saw that the law of God, although it can outline or trace God's holy standards, it cannot replace the heart. And so we saw there, there must be another an alternative to that. So this morning, again, verses 5 through 11, we see it is a unit. This is a reply. Notice, first of all, in the text, it says, Behold ye among the nations, among the heathen. The word ye is plural. Always when you see ye, it's plural. When you see thee, it's singular. So God is calling here more. Not only is Habakkuk here called to behold, it may seem that Habakkuk is actually representative of a whole group of righteous pleaders, People that are being compassed about, that we see in verse 4, compassed about by the wicked. And they are all summoned to behold, to look. 
But I don't think we should limit ourselves in the plural ye to just the righteous pleaders. I think God is also calling the entire nation to look around. Because it would be the whole covenant people that would be struck. It seems that the Lord at this point is summoning the righteous and the unrighteous to look around and to see what's happening. Now do you realize what this means? This means that Habakkuk, who had complained, he had pled with God, and thinks God is not seeing, God is not responding, is actually seeing two things. First of all, God does not rebuke him for his pleading, his constant pleading. Instead, he gives an answer that is so astonishing that I think we almost miss that it's an answer. Because what we're going to see is God is going to answer in a way that is severe. Now, perhaps you've been pleading with the Lord about something. Perhaps a loved one. Perhaps you've been pleading for this nation. Perhaps you've been pleading for surrounding wickedness. And you're like, God, where are you? And the answer is not where you expected it. You've been looking this way, expecting an answer this way. And God is going this way. Just know this. God hears his people. God does sympathize with pleaders that seek his righteousness. And he will answer. He will answer his own who are surrounded by the wicked. Not only do we see that he's aware and he's answering, he's also showing in his level of response a hatred of sin that even the righteous cannot understand. You see, the sinfulness of sin, as the Puritans would call it, is seen so much more clearly in the way God responds that even Habakkuk himself cannot countenance what's going on here. And you've got to think back to Israel here for a second. Israel had been warned, had they not? Did God not explicitly warn in Deuteronomy 28 of covenant curses that would happen if they forsook the law? He did. And they knew the law, and they abandoned it. So why are we going to now see shock coming in? What follows is no longer warning. Habakkuk had warned. Then he had pled. And God is answering in a unique way. He is answering with the imminent reality of judgment. It is as if the gavel has come smashing down. The judge of the whole earth has arisen and judgment has been made. And now he speaks. And so it says, Behold ye among the wicked and regard. Two words calling you to look around, as it were, to weigh what you see and think about it. Because the covenant people had rejected the covenant prophets, now the Lord tells them to look away from the prophets, to look away from the law, to look away from the safe walls of the covenant community, to look over the nation to the other nations, the heathen, the people that hated God, the people that were pagans. And he says, look there. You see, Judah had flattered herself. Well, we are the people of God. We have the city of Zion. We have Jerusalem. We have the temple. There's no way God would allow Jerusalem and the temple to fall to pagans, to those who, who worship idols and sticks and stones. But God says, behold to the heathen. You see, God would not vindicate his holy name from within Israel at this point. He will go outside of her walls to show that he is not mocked when the people of the covenant mock his name. You see, God may 
judge compromise within the walls of the churches by using those outside of the walls to bring that judgment. Perhaps there's sins that we have in the walls of this church, in this little group, that may unleash a hornet's nest from the outside. Perhaps it's unbridled YouTube watching. Things that we spend so much time on and the influence from the outside will come in. Perhaps it's the group of friends you are hanging out with. It is contaminating the group from the outside. It is a doorway to darkness. And God is asking you, regard, look, behold among the heathen. God summons to behold at this point means that the scourge, the whip, is already prepared. Now the locals at this time were very aware of what was going on. Undoubtedly they knew that Assyrian dominance was being crushed by the Babylonian armies. Johann Peter Lang commenting years ago said this. He says, already now the storm had burst forth among the nations, which will also overtake the secure sinners of Israel. There's something we can learn here. The prophets had preached. Many of them had preached. They had warned the people. And now God moves from the ear gate, the speaking of the prophets, to the eye. He says, look around. Look what's actually happening. How many of us will not believe the warnings, though they have been spoken to you so many times? Until the dark thunderclouds are already on the horizon. You can look at the weather app and you can see forecast thunderclouds, thunderstorms. And you'll still go to the beach, think you'll have a good time. But when the ominous clouds are there and then you look up, you know this is business. But to then still go, means you're not only regarding the information, you're disregarding what you see. It's visible at this point to all. Will you take God's word as it is written, as it has been preached, as it has been announced, or are you going to foolishly wait until your eyes witness the judgment? Learn also from this that a wise man sees what's going on in society and reflects scripturally on it. You know, as we see a culture that is growing in hostility to God, as ravenous wolves that are devouring truth and scorning righteousness, remember, as a wise man, we must look around and realize that we are not guaranteed to live comfortably in our homes. We are not guaranteed to be able to gather openly. Don't live with false expectations. Be aware of what's going on out of the world because it affects the church. And so as you see, and as you look around, humbly ask yourself, what, based on what's going on, am I living today as God calls me to live? The Apostle Paul talks about this when he says in Romans 13, he says, And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, 
For now is salvation nearer than when we believed. He's talking about the return of the Lord. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us cast off, therefore, the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Look around and make decisions based on where we are in redemptive history. Now this leads me to another point. I didn't, don't think I even mentioned the points. I do this once in a while. The points are these. Watching the mayhem we just looked at. The second point is wondering at the might. And the third point would be wasting the message. So second point here, wondering at the might. The phrase is, and wonder marvelously. Literally in the Hebrew it's this, and astonish yourselves and be astonished. It's like doubling up the word astonishment. You could paraphrase it like this, be horrified, be shocked at what's about to happen. The alarm bells are ringing loudly. Ding, 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 ding. You can just imagine at the town gate when, when they see the armies there and, and the, the, the watchmen on the walls are just rattling that, that bell. One would be a fool not to watch the chaos with Assyria having fallen and Babylon coming in. It would be like in World War II when German armies started to first take the Rhineland. They just took it back, then they went into Austria, then they went into Poland, and the people on the other side would be watching what was going on. Do you think they slept well? Do you think they thought, oh, it's never going to come? Wake up, wake up. Perhaps you're sitting here in absolute religious arrogance, thinking you're secure because you go to church Because you grew up in a Christian home. You have a form of godliness, the Bible calls it. But denying the power thereof. It's not after Christ. You might say, oh surely my faith is immune from catastrophe. Is it? Is it? Remember the Apostle Paul's words to the Corinthian church. When he says, look back at Israel. Remember how they fell in the wilderness. And then he adds these words. Wherefore, let him who thinketh he standeth. Take heed, lest he fall. Did Peter not say, Lord, I will never forsake you? And Jesus says, before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Do you remember Jesus said, behold, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. You see here the you, plural, all the disciples. And Jesus then says, but I have prayed for thee. He prayed for Peter. And we know one of the disciples fell. Who was it? Judas. One among the twelve. One in the inner circle of disciples. The twelve disciples. He fell. So be careful. Even if we lift our nose at Israel and say, man, how could they miss it? They got to know after so many prophets came. Why don't they see it? And we mock Israel. Remember what Paul says in Romans 11 to the Gentiles. He says this, well, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear, but fear. You see, had Israel not been so stubborn, but humbly repented earlier on and listened to the prophets, this may have averted the judgment. God may instruct his people first with the gentle staff. But if we harden ourselves, he may unleash the overwhelming, shocking 
rod. Perhaps there's areas in your life where certain sins are getting entrenched. They're settling in nicely into a groove. And you have been warned about it, and yet you've refused the exhortations from a brother or a sister. You think, well, it's not that bad. You may have rejected biblical counseling. A brother or sister brought the word even to bear on the situation. And you're like, well, it's just not my, my situation. You think God is not serious about his word? Dare we turn the commandments of God into suggestions? That's all they are, is just mere suggestions? Perhaps the Lord's chastisement at this point will set you beyond the pleading words of church members. And perhaps you will be delivered to the world, world, to the heathen. Look among the heathen. In fact, the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church when they had a brother who was living in such sin, wicked sin, he says the church at that point, after warning, he says this, they ought to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Many churches have abandoned church discipline. Where is it still exercised? We love to hear the word. We love to sing the songs. We love to have the sacrament. But church discipline, that's a line. It's too harsh, too uncomfortable, it's too invasive. And when churches abandon that, are we surprised when the members are now overrun by the heathen, secular counseling, worldly psychology? It's sad to say that brother is taking brother to secular courts to decide what the apostles, Paul says, should be judged even with the least of the brethren within the church. This is wreaking havoc within the church walls. Because when you refuse the ear gate, you will see with your eyes what's going to happen when the world comes flooding in. Think of the multiple exhortations that come our way. I'm not joking here. I'm not saying, oh, just look at them. I'm talking about myself. I'm talking about yourselves here When you're staying home from church, the Bible says and commands, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. When you are worried or anxious and just completely buckled up with all kinds of fears, the Bible says, fear not, little flock. The Bible says, fear not, be careful for nothing. When you're tempted to lie about something, the Bible says, let your speech be always seasoned with grace. Don't be dishonest, be honest. When you're getting annoyed and impatient at the checkout line because you have dinner waiting and you're getting annoyed with the person in front of you, the Bible calls you to be patient. That's a command for the church. When your spouse or your boss or your sibling does not seem to hear you, the Bible says put away all wrath and anger and malice and love one another and be patient and kind to one another. When you're tempted to stay on the couch all day and be a slouch and do nothing and not do your responsibilities that you are called to, the Bible says if a man does not work, he shall not eat. Now we can think, oh, those are just piddly little commands. And so we start to compromise with them. 
Believe me, maybe the shock, the astonishment of what's happening in your life personally, the coldness that may be setting in is a wake-up call from the Lord to call you and me to return to Scripture, to break up the fallow ground. God says, for I will work a work. You see that in the text? For I will work a work. Now there's a shift in perspective in these verses. We've already kind of said who this is, but notice in the text, look carefully at your Bible here, it says, for I, and notice the I is italicized in our text. What does that mean? That means it's not in the original. There is no I in the Hebrew here. It's not there. It was added by the translators for clarity. Literally, the Hebrew text says this, for a work is working. So we've got to ask ourselves, who is speaking? Does, does the, the, the text even tell us at this point? No, it doesn't. Not until verse 6 we see the word I, not italicized, for it says, for lo, I raise up the Chaldeans. That's the first time the pronoun is used. But we still don't know who it is. We, 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 we know, but not from the text. Look at verse 12. In the response we see clearly who is speaking. This is Habakkuk back to God. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine Holy One, we shall not die, O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and O mighty God, thou hast established for them correction. Habakkuk knows, but God doesn't identify himself. But he knows this. That's interesting. Look at the language. O Lord my God, Jehovah Elohim, the covenant name, the covenant God will judge the people of the covenant. It's almost as if in the text, in a suspenseful way, the text is building to show how shocking it is. Can it really be that Jehovah God is behind all of this judgment? That God himself would bring in pagans to his own people, to lead his own people into captivity, to destroy the holy hill of Zion, to destroy the temple, to allow the holy vessels of the temple to be plundered and carried off to Chaldea. God alone can give such success to the Babylonian army. He's doing this, and he will plunder his people. Now this raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? How can God allow such evil? What about the wills of the Babylonian people? Aren't they the ones wanting this? And the Bible affirms that there are two agencies at work here. There's God the sovereign and then there's the people, the Babylonian army. Now I'm not going to develop this point very deeply, but I will suffice it to say that we must acknowledge that Scripture teaches that in the same event there are two agencies, two agents. There's God and man. God, the Bible is clear, is the ultimate agent, the ultimate cause. He's always working, the Bible says, all things according to his own perfect counsel. But we also see the secondary agents, man, human beings, the Babylonian army, the people of Judah, acting according to their own will, exercising them, making choices. And the Bible is clear. You and I, the Babylonians, the people of Judah, are completely accountable for what we do Two agencies, God the ultimate, man the uh, sub-secondary agents, God 
is perfect, righteous in all his ways. Man is accountable for what we do. The best text that demonstrates these two agencies, and probably the most popular one, is from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph, talking about the wickedness of his betrayal, demonstrates these two agencies, sovereign and human, when he says this, but as for you, speaking to his brothers, you, ye, look at the plural, ye, thought evil against me. The secondary agents. But God, the ultimate agent, meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. You see that? We must acknowledge both. And so in the text of Habakkuk, God as the ultimate agent is speaking his ultimate purposes. Next time we will talk about the Babylonian army, the secondary agents in all of this. A.W. Pink wrote on this whole question of two agencies. He says, remember, God is the creator of the wicked, but not their wickedness. He is the author of their being, not the infuser of their sin. And so we must remember and keep those boundaries very carefully. So consider the implications of this mighty work of God. I will work a work in your days. It is an incomprehensible work. Oh, how incomprehensible are the judgments of Almighty God. Matthew Henry wrote, This is the Lord's doing, and it will be found a fearful thing to fall into his hands. Woe to those whom he takes to task. The idea that God delays his judgments is incomprehensible. Talks about his incomprehensible patience. Oh, how small is our patience? Like I said earlier at the checkout line, we're already impatient with the person in front of us that we hardly know. We don't even know the situation. We don't know if they were having a, a card issue or whatever, but we get impatient with the smallest things. Can you imagine the mercy of God who is omniscient, who knows all things, and his holy law is scorned willfully by sinners. His merciful covenant love is abused. His holy name is scorned. And when God then finally acts in judgment. Let us not be shocked at his speed of judgment, but at his patience for how long he withheld judgment. He waited so long. Consider also the incomprehensibility of his power. Nations move at his command. Nations fall at his will. Nobles and peasants and mighty soldiers and little children all move at his will. Think of how fragile you and me really are. Last night I was, I was reading in a book about the immutability of God and just reflecting on all of these things like omniscience and omnipotence and incomprehensibility and aseity, which means God has life in himself. And, and you can't help but meditate on the greatness of God and stop. And think, wow, we serve an amazing being. And my piddly mind does not even begin to grasp the beginning of his ways. Let me shut my mouth. Be humble. 
when I read the word and know him more. And so, think about the incomprehensibility of his purposes in bringing this judgment to Judah, his own people. With the mighty hammer that destroyed the nation, he is at the same time exercising his desire to build a greater house. You see, the destruction of Judah was for a moment, but he is building an eternal heritage. As the cultivator rips through the soil and disturbs the soil and upsets it and makes it dark and black, it doesn't end there. No farmer cultivates with not having the intent to seed for a harvest that will come in the future. And so when God brings that cultivator through the church at times, it is with a purpose for a future harvest. What a grace that God is working a work. Notice it says, I'm working a work in your days. How many times don't we think? Not in my day. This won't happen. Well, think, what may happen in our lifetime yet? Will he judge Canada further by letting her go deeper into wickedness? You think it's bad now? God may let it go further. Or will God sweep mercifully over this nation with a mighty revival? Are we praying for that? Will it be in our lifetime, in our days, that the Lord returns? Perhaps, are you looking for that? Hasten that day? One thing is for certain. God is not silent. He is now at work already. And that leads me to the final point. Wasting the message. Because the text says, Which ye will not believe, though it be told you. When God said that the punishment will exceed all belief, you think about what the people had already heard. The people had heard God's word through the law of Moses. They had rejected it. They had rejected God's word through the mouth of the prophets. And now God says they will reject his word about looming judgment that they see with their eyes already on the horizon. Our reaction then to the word of God is a barometer of our hearts. Unregenerate man finds it ridiculous to imagine that there are consequences to rejection of God's word. You bring the gospel to the community, people scoff, they mock. They can look at history And look, that Jesus walked this soil, that he lived. And if they look at the evidence, they can see he rose again. And yet they mock it, and they mock his word. What a barometer of the human heart. But think about this. Human unbelief does not change the fulfillment of God's word. In fact, the Lord is clear. Unbelief itself is part of what is predicted. So God will bring judgment, announce judgment, have it visible to all, and also predict that he will let many remain in their unbelief. In Lamentations 3, 
verse 64 and 65, the contemporary of Habakkuk. Who is that? Jeremiah. He says this, Render unto them a recompense, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. And then he prays this, Give them sorrow, or literally hardness or obstinacy of heart, thy curse unto them. Leave them their wickedness. You see, repentance in the light of looming judgment is a mercy that God can withhold. Remember Lot? The angels are at the door. This whole town goes in an uproar into some heinous wickedness. The angels pull Lot in. You know what they say? Call your sons and your daughters. Do you have any family members here? And tell them, because tomorrow... God will bring judgment the next day. And you know what it says in the text that his sons-in-law do? They mock him. They think he's nuts. It's the next day. Jeremiah says this. They have belied or misrepresented the Lord and said, It is not he. Neither shall evil come upon us. Neither shall we see the sword nor the famine. Is that you? You don't believe it? You see, if the covenant people then did not believe the word of God, that they would experience such judgment, then it's no wonder that when Isaiah spoke about another judgment, the judgment that the Lord's anointed would take upon himself, that Isaiah opens up his 53rd chapter who has believed our report? <laughs> they thought there's no way. There's no way that God's anointed would become a sheep led to the slaughter. They don't believe the judgment that would come to them, nor would they believe the judgment of the Lord's anointed. You see, when we disbelieve how dark our sin really is, we're going to miss all the cues of looming judgment, and we will also miss the value of the substitutionary judgment which the anointed Messiah bore. Turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. The Apostle Paul, it says here, if you look in verse 14... It says, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and sat down. And after reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation to the people, say on. And the Apostle Paul at this point talks about God and his working among the covenant people. How he separated them, gave them the land, and and how they ultimately would reject the Messiah. But look, fast forward here to verse 38 now. Acts 13, 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, that's Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from the which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Now look at this quotation. 
verse 41. Behold ye despisers, and wonder, and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. That's our verse. Mostly. It's different, isn't it? Did you catch that? Did you notice the problem? Did you notice what's different? It's not quite the same. We'll see the difference in a second. But do you also see another problem with this text? Paul is doing an interpretive no-no. You're not allowed to take an Old Testament prophet and change the interpretation, are you? Who is coming in Habakkuk's day to bring judgment? Which nation? The Chaldeans. Babylon. That's clear in the text. It's mentioned in verse 6. What's Paul doing? He quotes it and reapplies it to which judgment? The judgment that would come upon the nation when the Roman armies would come swarming in and destroy the temple a second time in A.D. 70. So what's Paul doing here? He takes it out of the historical context and he warns the Jews again of another looming judgment. And what he's doing is he's teaching us that the apostles take Old Testament passages and apply the principle in a new covenant context. You see, redemptive history has pushed forward. We are now living in the last days. And in the last days, God would again bring judgment to the Jews for their unbelief. But you'll notice in the text, he changes it a bit, doesn't he? Where's the heathen in the text? They're not there. He says, behold, ye despisers, and wonder, and perish. Why does he call them ye despisers? He's calling them traitors, as it were. Why traitors? Why despisers? Because the Lord of glory was among them, and what did they do with him? They betrayed him to Pontius Pilate, to the heathen, so that the heathen could destroy the Lord of glory, the very son of David, in their midst. They despise their own anointed Savior. And he says, if you persist in this and do not repent and seek in him the anointed, your salvation, the just, the just one for dying for the unjust, you will perish. And that's why he adds those words. You despisers and wonder and perish. You see, if the shock of the betrayal doesn't hit the Jews, they will perish. And if the shock of who Jesus Christ is for sinners does not hit you, you will perish. Likewise, And God again says, I will work a work in your days. Because you know what's interesting? That the Lord had spoken. Remember it says, in your days, Jesus had said this. Remember Matthew 24? He says, this generation shall not pass until all these things shall be fulfilled. Well, what would be fulfilled in Matthew 24? The destruction of the temple. Not one stone would be standing upon another. In the days of those Jews, the destruction would come upon them. And you know what's interesting? Jewish history records that the destruction of the temple under the Babylonian army and the destruction of the temple under the Roman army and, the, and Titus, the, the, the general, was on the same day. It's really interesting. How did the Jews respond now? Right? They'd seen the destruction once. They'd been warned once, and it came. It was on the horizon. 
They're under Roman rule. How do they respond? Look further in the text. Look at verse 44. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. They don't like it that there's the heathen now listening. And they spoke against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. And then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. In the hardening of the Jews, the gospel will go to the heathen. It's amazing. Believers, when I see this, when I see Habakkuk 1.5 linked with Acts 13.41, I marvel at the mercy of faith. The message of our judgment deserved and in Christ our life is preserved. Christians, I marvel that when countless millions reject him, the people of the covenant despised him It is a mercy that we are here this morning. I am shocked. I am astonished. I marvel that God has opened our eyes to see. That he has unstopped our ears to believe. When the threats of punishment were upon us, upon you, and upon me, the beauties of Christ's righteousness were made sweet to us. And that is not because we're smarter or because we have better vision. No, it is a mercy to be here. It is a mercy to hear this with the eyes of faith and with the ears unstopped and see it with the eyes of faith. Do not lose sight this morning as you see this text of the gift of faith that you believed the warning, that the eye was opened, that sovereign mercy named you particularly to flee from the wrath to come. And so, if you hear his voice today, hear in Habakkuk 1.5 the warning that is in front of each one of us. Judgment day is coming. The Lord, the judge of the universe, is coming like a thief in the night. Many scriptures say this. Do not waste the warning I'm going to take this entire text and close with this application. Phrase by phrase, behold ye among the heathen and regard. Behold what's coming. Behold him who is coming on the clouds. He's not coming from the heathen. No, he's coming from heaven. Behold him who came before Behold all you peoples everywhere. Behold Jews. Behold Gentiles. Look to that great day in history when he came. When the wrath of God shockingly was placed on the son of his love. And he bore the pure one, the holy one, bore the wrath of God on himself. Wonder marvelously. Be astounded at the cross. That God would show such incredible love for sinners like ourselves and drink the dregs of the wrath of God to the full. Be shocked that salvation would come through the judgment upon the Son. 
for I will work a work in your days. Have you seen the work that God has done through Jesus Christ? Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, he says, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. You see, salvation and judgment are a work from above. And in Jesus Christ, the work of salvation is complete. We can't add to it. We can't make more of it. It is completely finished. Behold, God has worked a work. And we did nothing to deserve it. What a work that is. Which he will not believe, though it be told you. And so today, you have been told of Jesus Christ, the Savior for sinners like you and like me. Don't reject him. Which side of the gospel message will you be on today? The Bible is calling you. It is pleading with you to hear his voice, to come to the shepherd, to embrace him by faith. Jesus Christ said to the centurion or to the, to the rich man who had a sick man, he said, do not be afraid. Only believe. And so until our Savior returns, we walk by faith, not by sight. Have you heard the voice of the Lord calling you? Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we come before you and we marvel at the cross. We are astounded at such redemption brought to sinners. Oh Lord, I pray that we would come humbly and yet joyfully to the throne of grace to find help in a time of need. Hear our prayer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.